Hi, my name's Emily. And my name's Chris. And in this episode of Sickle Cell, we're going to take a look at how private prisons operate, as well as the significance of prison labor. In the first episode, you heard about the beginnings of private prisons in the U.S. With those private prisons came the incentive to fill them as corporations like Geo Group and CoreCivic would receive money from the government for each prisoner they housed. This is called per diem and continues to happen today. Right. And while this might make sense for the companies that manage prisons to receive money from the government to house and feed prisoners, it becomes questionable when you realize that these are corporations in America. So the end goal is going to be to make a profit. Exactly. And this becomes even more questionable when you take a look at the business model of private prisons. It may come as a surprise to many. I know it was a surprise for me that the shares of these companies behind private prisons can actually be traded on the stock market. That means that not only can people invest in these corporations, and we'll talk more about why that's problematic later on in the episode, but these companies now have even more of an incentive to produce a profit to please the shareholders. Right. And this is often done by cutting costs such as getting rid of rehabilitation or enrichment programs within the prisons or increasing penal labor, both of which hurt prisoners. And penal labor, that's another part of the private prison business model, and arguably the worst part, as prisoners are forced to work long hours, sometimes in dangerous conditions or jobs, with threats of solitary confinement as the alternative. And since these prison workers are not considered employees, they have to work without the benefits of basic labor protections, a minimum wage, sick leave, or overtime pay. According to a recent study by the Prison Policy Initiative, wages for these working inmates are on average just 86 cents an hour. And some states like Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Florida, and Texas don't pay prisoners for their labor at all. And even for those that do get paid, the prisons take a large portion of their wages to cover costs of imprisonment. (laughs) With forced labor, often some of it for no pay at all, along with the disproportionate majority of inmates being people of color, It's no wonder why people draw comparisons between penal labor and slavery, especially considering that some penitentiaries in the South have inmates working fields that used to be slave plantations. Right. And it also kind of resembles the convict lease system that quickly followed the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Although it outlawed involuntary servitude, this did not apply to anyone convicted of a crime. Since slavery was no longer legal, many Southern states turned to taking Black people prisoner for petty crimes or even non-existent crimes through the enforcement of Black codes and basically rented them out to owners of plantations, railroads, and mines. Exactly. These Black codes were laws that only applied to Black people, and the crimes could be anything from carrying a weapon to loitering or not carrying proof of employment. So basically, you would be arrested for just being Black. Right. And once they were in prison, they could be leased out through the convict lease system and forced to work. And this practice was outlawed in 1930, but it's hard to believe, considering that forced labor within prison continues to be allowed, and not just for prison upkeep like cleaning, but producing goods for the free world. Right. Penal labor is used to produce a lot of common goods. For example, military gear, furniture, eyeglasses, road signs, and many other products. The prison labor is also very common in the agricultural industry as well. Like you mentioned, many prisons, especially those in the South, have inmates working fields and harvesting crops. I also found that 
while conducting my research, some tech companies like Verizon and AT&T actually use inmates to staff some of their calling centers, which is super weird to think of. And I'm definitely not going to be the same whenever I have to call about my router or service outage next time. Right. It's also important to recognize that this kind of prison labor really took off in the late 70s because until then, there were strong regulations of selling prison-made goods and using prison labor for commercial companies because labor unions wanted to prevent competition between workers within the unions and those in prison. Right, because how are workers supposed to compete with millions of prisoners that could do the work for little to nothing? Exactly, and since this deregulation of prison labor in the 1970s, it has become an increasingly used source of cheap labor for private companies and a revenue source for government and private prisons. Which is also terrible for workers outside of prisons, since so many jobs are being assigned to a captive labor force, and the pay from that labor is not being reinvested into the economy. Instead of workers outside of prisons being able to hold these jobs and earn and spend that money at local businesses, private prisons get to collect the money that's made off the labor of inmates and use it to expand their corporation, only adding to the problem. Right. It hurts the prisoners, the workers outside of prison, and the economy. Prison labor even affects the minimum wage, as there is a lack of incentive to raise it to meet costs of living, since many of the low-wage jobs are now in prisons. Yeah, I think Heather Thompson said it best. She's a professor of prison labor history at University of Michigan. Um, she said, quote, it doesn't matter if jobs go somewhere else. The ability to send them inside prisons dampens wages and brings a whole lot of low-wage jobs out of the mainstream economy. Nobody on the inside or outside is making money. That's why it's a working-class problem, end quote. Exactly. Officials have mentioned publicly how much state governments rely on revenue from penal labor, especially following the introduction of early release programs for nonviolent offenders. Many were concerned about the effects that releasing prisoners earlier would have on the captive labor force. Yeah, because they don't want to lose the prisoners that can be making the money, which is terrible because prison policies shouldn't be influenced by profit instead of prisoner welfare and rehabilitation. Like that should really be the priority. Right. Which brings us to the question of why does the U.S. continue to utilize private prisons and prison labor, especially considering the fact that there's inconclusive evidence that private prisons are more cost effective or efficient. And I think that has to do with the definition of efficiency in this case. Is it rehabilitation and reduction of recidivism or is it recidivism itself so that these institutions can still exist and profit off the multi-billion dollar industry that is prison labor? That's a good point. And I think the answer to that question lies within the legislation, which often includes lockup quotas for private prisons, which basically guarantee funding for corporations like CoreCivic and GeoGroup. According to Business Review Berkeley, the premise of the lockup quota is that taxpayers either have to keep these facilities at 90% capacity or pay for the empty prison beds. Right. And Business Review Berkeley even gives an example of how in Colorado, this has led to the government using private prisons as the first priority for placing prisoners rather than for overflow purposes and attempts to keep those prisons full and avoid paying for empty prisons. But the issue with that is it means that we are increasingly relying on private prisons rather than phasing them out, which, again, only contributes to the problem as it brings those companies more capital to expand their industry by opening new facilities. Exactly. And that's where it fits into the prison industrial complex, which is basically the overlapping of policing and economic interests or a system that promotes prisons 
as a solution to social, political, and economic problems while reaping political and economic benefits for incarceration. And private prisons play an influential role in that. A little over 8% of the total state and federal prison population is incarcerated in private prisons. And while that may seem like a small portion to some people, it's the rate at which we're increasingly relying on private prisons that's truly alarming. Since 2000, the number of people housed in private prisons has increased by 39%. And these larger private prison operating corporations have spent over $45 million on lobbying elected officials to continue their utilization within the industry. And while they may promote rehabilitation and reduction in rates of recidivism, CoreCivic, one of those large companies, has seen its profits increase by more than 500% in the past 20 years. Moreover, the business growth shows no sign of stopping as they have already approached 48 states to take over additional government-run prisons. Also, something I just wanted to mention that I found out while researching is that Texas was actually the first state to adopt private prisons in 1985, incarcerating the largest number of people under state jurisdiction with 12,728. That was just six years after prison labor was deregulated and became insanely profitable. And this is kind of icky, considering that, if you remember from earlier in the episode, Texas is one of the states that doesn't pay prisoners at all for their labor. Right. And what is even more icky is that people invest in these corporations to get in on the profits. And by investing, they are anticipating scenarios in which more people are put in prison for longer sentences and forced to work. Exactly. And right there is a key example of the prison industrial complex at work. And also the fact that it's not just investors anymore, because with the deregulation of prison-made goods, people are unknowingly contributing to and profiting off prison labor by purchasing these products. Luckily, not so much anymore, since many companies no longer use prison labor like Whole Foods, Ikea, and Victoria's Secret. A lot of brands have announced their discontinuation of using prison labor due to more people becoming aware of the issue and calling them out for it. Right. And that's why it's so important to raise awareness about prison labor and private prisons, because some companies do still use prison labor. And it's honestly difficult to even keep an up-to-date list of them because of the exchange of these goods and the legality of companies owning and partnering with other companies so that their name of their business is not directly attached to those transactions. Yeah, that is super shady. The majority of prison-made products are actually purchased by other government agencies, though. And while it means that less people are unknowingly contributing to prison labor, it shows that the U.S. government is directly profiting from prison labor by using those products, even if they are paying for the items, because it is at discounted price since they don't have to pay the workers a fair wage. Exactly. And there's a difference between building inmate skills or job experience and straight up exploiting them for profit. And the latter of the two is kind of what's going on within the private prison system. We hope that this episode provided some insight on the significance of private prisons and prison labor within the prison industrial complex. Join us for the next episode of Sickle Cell when we discuss some possible options of where to go from here to try to put a stop to this system of exploitation.